1 Peter chapter 1, I hope that you have, you are greeted with a bulletin, and if you want to grab the sermon notes out of that to follow along with me, we're continuing in our series in 1 Peter that we started a couple of weeks ago, and I want to, um, I want to encourage you by just looking at the sermon title that I've simply titled today's sermon, Suffering is Never for Nothing. We just sang a song, It Is Well, and I, I want to tell you a little bit about that song as we come to our passage, just by way of introduction a little bit. But the psalm was written by a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Spafford was a very successful businessman um, in Chicago, lawyer living in Chicago, about the time of D.L. Moody, the famous pastor uh, there. He, he had a thriving uh, uh, legal practice, he had a beautiful home, he had a wife, four daughters, and a son. He was a devout Christian and he faithful studied, or faithfully studied God's Word. At the very height of his financial um, and professional success, he and his wife uh, suffered the tragic loss of their son. Shortly thereafter, on October 8, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire almost burned up all of his real estate and literally burned up his wealth. A couple of years later, trying to make it in uh, the uh, business world again and um, uh, in trying to buy some more buildings, he had this property that he was trying to do that was going to change his career and ultimately the sale went through. And so because of a season, and all of us can relate, maybe not specifically with what Spafford was going through at this moment, but all of us can relate to seasons where we just feel like it's just nothing always gets better. You can't catch a break. Well, this for years was Spafford's story from losing his son to losing all of his investments to not being able to step forward. So he and his wife said, you know what, we, we just kind of need a break. And so they decided to go to England where they were going to meet D.L. Moody, who was preaching over there at the time. And, but, but Spafford, trying to, to handle some business, stayed behind, and he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead. While they were traveling, uh, they had a, uh, a boat accident, and in 12 minutes, their boat sunk, killing 226 people. His wife, Anna, was able to grab a piece of debris. She was unconscious, but eventually she was saved. Spafford got a telegram that simply said this, saved alone. With a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a ship that would take him to his grieving wife in England. Spafford stood hour after hour on the deck of a ship as he was crossing the Atlantic to get over to England, grieving the loss of his four daughters. When the ship passed the approximate place where they had drowned, Spafford wrote this the words to the song that we just sung. When you begin to think about someone who writes words like when a peace like a river attendeth my way, meaning when peace comes or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou, referring to God, has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I recognize as we come to tonight's sermon, suffering is never for nothing. I recognize as we talk about suffering, at the end of the day, no explanation is going to be good enough. And I hope though, as we study God's word, God's word is going to speak to us amidst our suffering. No matter what our suffering is, no matter the situation we're, we are in, the truth is, although I have experienced suffering and you have experienced suffering, 
The truth is, as a, as a pastor, oftentimes I come face to face with suffering and I'm not able to say I know exactly what you're going through. And I don't attempt tonight to be able to say I have an idea of what you're going through because many of you are suffering in ways that are unimaginable to anything I've ever experienced. And so tonight I'm not here to try to give a, a just a sleek answer or a sleek explanation that's going to just make things better. But I do hope tonight that you'll receive something far greater and instead of an explanation, you meet the person of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the greatest answer. But let me read 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That won't be on the screen, so I want to encourage you to grab a Bible and the seat back in front of you. But when we get to verse 6, it will be on the screen. So let me read in verse 1, Peter writes this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, let me pause here and just remind us that Paul is writing to elect exiles. We looked at two weeks ago that this means that exiles, that the place of which they are living is not their home. And he's writing to Christians that are here on earth referring to heaven as our home, this is, we are considered, according to 1 Peter, exiles. But we're not just any exiles, we are elect exiles, or we are chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. To summarize all of that, Peter is saying, you are elect exiles, but not by accident. That according to God's Love, His sovereignty, His grace, all of those reasons, the foreknowledge, sanctification, and obedience in Jesus Christ, this is the reason why you are elect exiles. And so this is important for us to recognize as we come to suffering, we must remember that although we saw two weeks ago that I did not argue, and the passage is not arguing, that God orchestrates in His design suffering, but because of sin, suffering is in this world, and He in His sovereignty works all of it out for a purpose, suffering is never for nothing. We've got to remember that this is not accident, that God's sovereignly working. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now coming to our text in verse 6, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, referring to everything we just read in verses 3 through 5. The fact that God in His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, to a, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of all of those reasons, we rejoice. The main point of tonight's sermon, as you just want to fill this in the blank if you're following along, is to joyfully, joyfully embrace suffering. Joyfully embrace Suffering. I want to give that to you so you have that in mind as we read verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested 
genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though that it perishes, is tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, verses 6 through 9 go together, and so I put them together in your notes on the back, but we're only going to cover verses 6 and 7 this week, and we'll cover verses 8 and 9 next week. So dealing with verse 6, having this mindset of joyfully embrace suffering. Sounds like an oxymoron. Sounds paradoxical. You're telling me, first of all, to embrace suffering as opposed to avoid suffering. You're telling me that the text is telling me that I am to embrace suffering, but then you're telling me that I, I kind of need to like it, that, that I need to joyfully embrace suffering. Follow along with me in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Our joy, I want to make clear here, there is a big difference between the joy that we're talking about today and happiness that is circumstantial. It's in the definition. Circumstantial happiness is happiness dependent upon your circumstances. And if we allow circumstances to affect our happiness, then we'll be happy or not happy based off whether we're in a trial or not in a trial. This is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is joy that is not connected to our circumstances, but joy that is connected to our salvation and Jesus Christ. Not only our salvation, but this idea that comes along with that salvation of a hope, a living hope, an inheritance, and a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We rejoice in that. The joy that we are talking about tonight is a joy that is outside of our immediate circumstances. That it's a joy that is placed in Christ who has overcome all circumstances, who's overcome suffering himself, who's overcome sin, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Our joy is in a place that is beyond us. This is what Peter is saying. And if our joy is in a place that is beyond us, then he says this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Three things I want to point out here, just looking at those verses, is it says a little while. I want to be clear about something. In context, he's talking about time in reference to uh, the salvation referred back to in verse 5, to an eternity. So when we say a little while, he's referring to our time as exiles. I and it's important because I don't need you to read this because the text isn't saying a little while when you look at time based off here on earth. Because if you look at that way, we go, look, my suffering is not supposed to last. My suffering will be over tomorrow. But that's not precisely what this text is saying. And this is important for us to get. Because for a lot of us, our suffering will last a lot longer than a day. A lot of us, our suffering will last a lot longer than a year. Some of us, our suffering via the form of sickness, via the form of heartache and death and whatever else and many other things, a lot of time our suffering will last a lifetime on this side of eternity. But remember, our perspective is not on this world. Our perspective is on the salvation that is ready to be revealed for us. And in light of that, this time as elect exiles of suffering sojourners, as I said before, suffering sojourners, then this is just a little while. Second, 
it says this, that you have been grieved by, or excuse me, though you've now for a little while, if necessary. This necessary, who's in control of the necessary? And we're going to see all throughout First Peter that the person who's in control of suffering, let me be clear, the person who's in control of our lives amidst suffering is God the Father. And so the necessary, meaning if God in his sovereign plan, back to verse 2, according to his foreknowledge, if he calls for us to suffer, so be it. This is what the text is saying. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The third thing I want us to see from this quickly is that he calls it grief. What I'm not saying when I say joyfully embrace suffering, I'm not saying that suffering isn't suffering. I'm not saying that suffering isn't difficult. I'm not saying, and the text is not saying, that suffering doesn't bring large amounts of grief because he says it. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I want to encourage us going back to the hymn, It Is Well. How does someone have a years of what Spafford went through? And many of you can relate. Lose his son, then lose his business, lose all of those things, and then lose all of his children. How do you, still in the heat of grieving, in the moment of that, as you cross the waters where your four daughters lay, how do you write this song? How do you write, it is well with my soul? No matter what the Lord brings my way, it is well with my soul. Well, if we go back and you, we're going to sing this song again at the end, but if you read the words, he gives the answer of First Peter. It is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is because Christ has already endured our sufferings, because Christ has already done these things. So no matter my situation, no matter my circumstances, no matter the hurt, I, even though it hurts, it doesn't take away the hurt, and I'm not trying to minimize the hurt, but when we face cancer, and we face broken relationships, and we face hurts, and we face illness, and we face sin in our lives and sin that is acted towards us. When we face all of these things, we are still able to sing, it is well, because our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. Our joy is directly linked to the reality that you and I have been born again into the salvation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, joyfully embrace suffering. Now, for the embrace part, why not joyfully avoid suffering? That sounds a lot better. But why joyfully embrace suffering? Two truths tonight, and there's the, the you can follow along in your notes that will help us uh, unpack this. But the first is this. You embrace suffering because suffering proves our faith. Suffering proves our faith. Read with me in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. Tested genuineness. That's, that's one, word, one word in the Greek. Tested genuineness. That, that's there to... It, it's, if we were to give a longer translation, it would be to test to make sure it is genuine. It, it's to prove it. It's a test to, to prove you know something. I, for those of you um, in medical field, teachers, a lot of jobs... 
you have to be licensed. And part of the licensing is you taking a test to prove you know what you're talking about. To prove that you have the content to back up your claim. When we look at this, what Peter is saying is that though we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by these trials, so that for the purpose of proving the genuineness of your faith. Think of it, if you will, in the illustration of this. When we think take gold, because he uses gold in this text, you take gold alongside fool's gold. To me, an uneducated person, you put both of those in front of me, they look the same to me. They look good enough to me. I, I would pay a lot of money for something fake if it was up to me. Like, I'm, I don't know. Why? Because they have the appearance and they have the claim on the outside of being of the same substance. However, once you put them through the test, once you put them through pressure, once you put them through fire, once you put them through that purification process, you're going to quickly see that the substance is completely different. Well, this is the idea when it comes to proving our faith. Now, we prove it to whom? First, we prove our faith to us. When we look at our claims to follow Jesus, it's real easy to be fool's gold type faith when everything is fine. Let me be honest, and this is... Uh, so some of you who grew up maybe within the Christian faith, you, you can recognize this and understand this. But I had many friends like myself who grew up in the Christian faith. It, it was cultural to be Christian. It was normal to be Christian, right? And so because of that, I had many friends who, who just had a cultural Christianity. Let me give an example. I, had a, I got a phone call from a friend this week who I went to high school with and who... We did some church things together and still a good friend of mine, but it was kind of abnormal that he called me. I haven't talked to him in a long time. The last time I talked to him actually was a few years ago when out of the blue, um, his grandmother passed away and he didn't know a pastor, but he knew me. And he called and asked if I would do the funeral. And so I was living in Mississippi anyways. I, I, I did the funeral, but we don't talk that often. And he called me this week because the Lord's beginning to do a work in his life to call him out to a genuine faith. Here's the point, though. Is he had spent many years in cultural Christianity that he might admit that I'm not sure along the way it was always genuine. But it was through life circumstances, it was through suffering, it was through trials that caused him to really focus in and go, hey, is my faith genuine or is it just something I go to church? Or is it just something I do because that's what other people do? But when the going gets tough, when the fire comes, when the pressure comes, does my faith stand the test? George Mueller said this, The only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm amidst severe testing. One of the most difficult things of serving and ministering to people like myself who grew up in Christianity, who at times may not have the genuine faith, is helping them see that their faith is cultural. You do this because your friends do it. You do it because it benefits you. But do you worship Christ when there's no benefit? Well, those moments are found in suffering. Those moments are found in trials. Those moments are found when they recognize that 
when pressure comes, do I turn to depend? Why is that a good thing? See, this is a gracious thing that the Lord allows trials and suffering in order to prove our faith is because if our faith is false like fool's gold, I want to know it. It's a gracious thing for God to show me my areas in my life of a lack of faith. It's gracious for Him to show me that I am fallible. It's gracious for Him to show me that I have need because it's in those moments I turn to someone outside of myself. I turn to someone outside of Jonathan and I recognize that Jonathan cannot solve this problem. And I turn to the one who can. See, it's gracious when God brings us to brokenness. It's gracious when He brings us to nothing because it's in those moments we will either recognize that we genuinely love Him and depend upon Him, or we will see our faith for false fool's gold as it is. Now, this may sound tough. Are you calling my faith fool's gold? I don't know. That's for you to decide. But what I am saying is that trials and tribulations that break us are gracious because they will let us see really what is the core and the substance of who we are. Not only does uh, suffering prove our faith to ourselves, but it proves it to others. Matthew chapter 13, in this parable of the seed and good soil and bad soil, I'm going to read just a couple of verses in the parable of, in verse 5 and 6. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Jesus, give an exclamation or explanation to this a few verses later, says this about that soil. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. See, Jesus here is describing what we're talking about. And I need you to know that I want a faith that stands when the sun brings its scorching heat. But I'll never know if the sun doesn't bring its scorching heat. Suffering, we embrace it. Because it proves our faith to ourself. It proves it to others as genuine. First John 2.19, describing those who are part of the church and then left the church, he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But when they went out, that it might, but they went out, that it might become plain to all that they were not of us. You see... Suffering brings out the truth. Not only does it prove our faith to ourselves, it proves our faith to others, but it proves our faith to God. Now, let me be clear. When I say that it proves our faith to God, God's not in question. God knows the answer. But when we look at this, it says this, the tested, come back to me in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, we're going to skip that phrase in the middle. We'll come back to it. It's just a, just kind of like a parent, parenthetical statement. It, it's disconnected. So, the phrase actually continues, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I read this, that our faith may be tested genuine so that it may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, this sounds pretty normal until we recognize that the people receiving the praise, honor, and glory are those with genuine faith. Now, this, this sounds contrary to what oftentimes we hear because what we often 
recognize as true is that all praise, honor, and glory is due to Jesus. But the text is clearly saying that it's our genuineness of faith will be result and found with praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. There's this story. Jesus talks about a faithful servant. And when the faithful servant is obedient, he says he'll enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. It's this celebration of faithfulness, of genuineness, of authenticity that's made it in. And this is the sense of what's being said here. Is that through trials and tribulations, your faith will be seen as genuine and it will result in, well done, my good and faithful servant. It will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who's the one doing the praise? Jesus. So hold on. Are you, Pastor, are you telling me? Because you, all of y'all are, I know some of you are like heresy. You're telling me that when Jesus shows up, he's going to praise, honor, and give glory to us? In one sense, absolutely. But let's not forget what we studied last week in verse 5, talking about this inheritance, talking about us who are being, that are uh, um, this inheritance that's in heaven for us. Listen to this in verse 5. Who by God's power, us, believers, are being kept or guarded through faith. So it is through faith that is tested genuine that we what? Have praise, honor, and glory. But who's the one guarding and keeping our faith by his power? God is. So in one sense, it's our faith of genuineness that Jesus says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But at the same time, we go, well, thanks for celebrating. You're the one who gave me the power to be faithful to begin with. So yes, in one sense, I am saying that the text is saying that we are celebrated by God for a genuine faith. But at the same time, the text is also making it clear that we have genuine faith because we are guarded by God's power, that he saves us and he keeps us. Therefore, actually, any praise, honor, and celebration of our genuineness of faith actually just reflects back onto him for his power in keeping us. See how this works? So no, at the end of the day, you and I are not getting the praise, honor, and glory. He's getting the praise, honor, and the glory because through trials, he tests our faith. Now listen to me. There's not a question of genuine faith facing suffering and not expressing genuine faith. I need you to hear me because one of the things as I study this and I think about this idea of embracing suffering is I go, God, but what if I can't handle it? But, but what if in this suffering I'm unfaithful? There's two options. One is that you are unfaithful. That worst case scenario, my greatest fear proves true. Option two is that I prove faithful. Now let me explain these two options based off of what we've studied. Ungenuine, unfaithful faith is because we don't actually have faith to begin with. Because the passage says if we have faith, God's power keeps our faith, and we have nothing to worry about. So this is gracious because this reveals to me that I need Jesus. So if you're in suffering, and this is, this, I want to I apply this very lovingly. If you're in suffering, and you see your faith just fumbling, I'm, I'm not saying it'll be perfect. I imagine Spafford in that moment, full of grief, emotions, I'm sure he had questions. I'm sure he had arguments. But at the end of the day, he said, it is well. But for some of us, that's not the case. 
had a friend that was in my small group back in Mississippi. We, I didn't know him very long. Um, I was never sure of his faith to begin with because his wife had recently come to Christ and he had been around, but I, I never saw personally him very much. And so I was never really sure, but recently, sadly, I saw on Facebook that his father passed away and I found out because he was in a post cursing God. And in that moment, I, I broke because, I, because respectfully, I saw someone who didn't have a genuine faith. And I'm, I'm not saying that in any way to be mean or to condemn, but this is the example I simply want to give that in our most tough moments, do we turn and trust God or do we not? And if we don't, would you recognize that that means you need God? That that means that you need to turn to Him. But in these moments where we do stand faithful, somehow I don't know how we endure the suffering we do and stand faithful. First of all, it's not because of our strength, because of Christ's strength within us. Either way, Suffering allows us to see the substance that's in it. But not only does suffering prove our faith, but second, suffering improves our faith. We've got to speed up here for time's sake. Suffering improves our faith. What do we mean by this? In the same way, well, maybe not I, um, but, but Brian, he's a buff dude. But maybe how Brian would go to work out, I, I don't, you can tell by my arms, I don't, I, don't, I don't like the weight room. But people tell me, if I wanted to get muscles, I needed to go work out. Well, that stinks, that hurts, right? That, that, that causes energy, right? But I've been told that how muscle grows is through pressure and strain, it tears, and then it builds back stronger. It tears, and it builds back stronger. It tears, and it builds back stronger. This is the idea. And it comes straight from the passage, verse 7, where it says this, more precious than gold that perishes, it is tested by fire. Our faith is improves in the sense that, that it is revealed and it is purified through suffering. Therefore, we embrace it. I want to be someone of strong faith. I want to be someone who doesn't rely on me, but relies on God. Well, guess what? Embrace suffering. Don't avoid it, but embrace it. James chapter 1 gives this idea, and it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. That way you may be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. Romans 5 says the same thing. Let me read the first couple of verses that, that kind of build us up so we can see the context. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. And this gives us to this idea of hope. The hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I titled today's message, Suffering is Never for Nothing in honor of this book I read this week that deals with this idea by Elizabeth Elliot. And I recommend, and I, it, there's going to be a few books throughout this series that I'm just going to recommend to you. 
one of the questions I get a lot in suffering, and I've gotten it from some of you in this room, is I just need a resource. I need a resource that will just encourage me in this moment. This is now at the top of my list. For those who don't know Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, this book was actually just recently published after her death. But Elizabeth Elliot, her and her husband were missionaries in Ecuador working with an unreached people group, and her husband was murdered by the people they were trying to minister to. Just let that sink in a second, the suffering of a wife whose husband is murdered in the moments of trying to live for Jesus. I can imagine Elizabeth, and she gives notion to this throughout this book and in other books of going, God, why? We're trying to serve you faithfully. Why would you allow this to happen? Her husband is murdered. She goes on to, to her and her daughter, one-year-old daughter that was late or left behind. They go to serve the same people group that murdered her husband and saw many come to know Christ. Years later, she married again. Her second husband would die to cancer. And then she would live and or live late into life. And, and before she died, dementia had completely taken over her life and taken over her mind. This was someone who knew suffering. Way more than I know suffering. But she said this about suffering. She said this, I've come to see that it is through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And if we'll trust Him for it, we can come through to unshakable assurance that He's in charge, that He has a loving purpose, and that He can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. Let me take the illustration of that I just gave of her question. God, I, I'm trying to faithfully serve you. Why would you allow this to happen? We're trying to minister to these people. Why would you allow this to happen? I give that because that's a specific question, a question that all of us have asked before. It, maybe not in the same context, but we've asked this question, God, why is this happening? Now, we understand from Scripture, we understand from our story with the kids, that suffering is here because of sin in Genesis 3. Because of sin in this world, there is brokenness and there is hurt and there is suffering in general. And we can understand that we can embrace that suffering because it proves and improves our faith. But that doesn't answer the question that most of us are asking. But why this specific suffering? Why this cancer? Why the loss of a family member? Specifically to my friend on Facebook said this statement. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have allowed my dad to die. And so therefore, because his dad died, he concluded that God must not love him because he couldn't think of a specific reason why God would allow that suffering to happen. Now, now hear me. I don't have an answer to that question. I can't tell you specifically why his dad died. Elizabeth Elliot can't answer why her husband had to die. I can't tell you specifically why the cancer I can't tell you specifically why the mental illness. I can't specifically tell you why the financial difficulties, why the sudden death in a family member. I can't tell you why the loss of a job. I can't tell you the specifics for those reasons. But listen to me. I can tell you one reason it's not because of. It's not because God doesn't love you. See, listen to, listen to my friend's statement that he wrote. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have allowed my dad to die. But the opposite is precisely true, because it's, it's in John 3 that we see, because a God loved us, 
that he actually sent his son to die. See, it's in the greatest act of suffering that we see the greatest act of love. It's in the greatest act of suffering that we see the greatest act of grace. Where I may not be able to give you an explanation, the gospel will give you a person. And if you're in here today, the enemy's going to try to get you to think that this specific suffering is happening because God doesn't love me. And what we see is that in the midst of suffering, we see God's love the greatest. It's in the midst of suffering of His Son on the cross that we see His greatest love. And I challenge you that if you will joyfully embrace suffering, that you'll find that amidst your specific suffering, you'll find the specific love and grace that you need amidst that suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. With that being said, I want to take the opportunity to kind of transition into the Lord's Supper because this is precisely what we're talking about. That as you're in here today and you are asking the question, why? Why does this have to happen to me? Why? God, I'm trying to serve you faithfully. Why? That perspective sees suffering as only negative. But God in His grace and his mercy he used the suffering of the brokenness of this world to display love and I want you to see today that the answer to the why is Jesus in the sense that Jesus isn't necessarily the cause of suffering I'm not saying that but he is the answer amidst suffering and he is the one who gives us hope and he is the one who gives us life and we see that it's in the moments of his agonizing suffering on the cross that you and I can have life so that we don't have to face the eternal separation and suffering and damnation in the fiery furnace, so to speak, to use the language of Scripture, but also use the language of First Peter, that fire is the picture of purification of sin, whether in suffering and damnation or even in the beautiful picture of Christ's suffering that He took on God's wrath while His death on the cross so that you and I don't have to. He literally experienced hell, which is this picture of God's un just ending wrath on his son so that we don't have to experience that unending wrath for eternity. And it's in this moment of suffering that Jesus says, I love you. And I want us to see that it's in your moment of suffering that Jesus will say to you, I love you. But the night before he was betrayed and he hung on the cross for us, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Then he took the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. And so we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper because Scripture tells us that when we eat of the bread and take of the cup, that we do this in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us. That we do it in remembrance of what He has done for us. And so we are coming in this moment and we're going to sing as we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing it as well. And I want you to joyfully embrace. If you're a follower, baptized believer in Jesus, this is for Christians. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we just want to say thank you for coming. But, but be comfortable just sitting and allowing the bread and the juice to pass. But for the believers in this room, we take this because we recognize that in our suffering, Christ suffered greater. That it's in His suffering that we have life, that we have hope, that we have inheritance. And so we can joyfully embrace the suffering that we face currently as elect exiles, understanding that one day there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sorrows, there will be no more sin, 
that he will wipe all our tears away, that he will make all things new, that we have a living hope, that we have an inheritance that is being guarded and kept for us by God's power and our faith within us to a salvation that one day be, will be revealed. This is a promise. Therefore, we joyfully embrace the suffering on this side of eternity. And so as we take, we reflect on sin, we look back to His suffering, in gratitude we reflect, but also we look forward in hope. This is the beauty of the Lord's Supper. It meets everything we're talking about. It's because of Christ's suffering. We can look back and we can recognize because of His suffering we have life and that gives us hope and joy. But also it points to the future of a promise of suffering one day no more for those who are in Christ. But before we take, let me just say this and let me say it clearly and lovingly. That God is a holy God and that sin cannot be ignored. And Scripture tells us even though this isn't popular in our day, in our culture today, that if we don't turn to Him in salvation, if we don't turn to Him in faith, if we don't believe in Him, Romans chapter 10, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If we never make that profession, never turn our life to Christ, then Scripture says we'll spend eternity away from Him in a suffering that is unimaginable. But Christ's desire to save you from that suffering. He suffered for us. So today, you may not need a cracker or the juice that symbolizes that. You need Him. And so I would encourage you today, would you turn to Him in salvation if you've never turned to Him? Would you put your faith and trust in Him? Would you turn away from sin? And would you turn to Him? With that being said, I want to invite the deacons and the ushers that are serving the Lord's Supper, if they'd make their way up. And I want to pray over the elements, and first we're going to pray over the bread. And then they're going to pass, and then just hang on to it. And when they're done, I'll read a passage of Scripture, and then we'll all eat.